Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, author and Oxford historian Peter Frankopan is here to talk about his latest bestseller called The Earth Transformed, an untold history, where he maps out just how much impact climate and our ability to adapt to it has had on human history. It was a weekend to remember in Wrexham in Wales as their local soccer team, Wrexham AFC, won the National League Championship. Why is that team sound so familiar? Because it's the one co-owned by Canadian actor Ryan Reynolds. There's been a documentary made about how he and partner Rob McElhenney bought the team. Uh, The docuseries is called Welcome to Wrexham. And we'll speak to one of those who took part in that docuseries, who's also a big fan of the teams about just how important this championship is. But first, we take a seat behind the organ at Scotiabank Place with longtime Maple Leafs organist Jimmy Holmstrom. He has had the gig since 1988. He's never missed a game. He likes to say he's played for every NHL team since then. And we talked to him about his greatest hits. We're going to talk hockey off the top tonight because, of course, the NHL playoffs are still going on. Uh, The Jets are playing tonight, hosting Vegas. They're down 2-1 in that series. Uh, Edmonton tied their series at two games apiece with a win in L.A. last night, a big win. So that game is now, that series is now a best of three, moving back to Edmonton. And the Leafs are down 4-3 in the fourth game of their series in Tampa tonight. They're up 2-1. So if they win here, uh, they're pretty much in control of that series. If they lose... It's a whole new ball game as they head back to Toronto. And waiting for them in Toronto is a man who's played for, he likes to say he's played for every team in the NHL. And while his team is in action tonight in Tampa, Jimmy Holmstrom is not suited up. He's back in Toronto prepping for Game 5 at Scotiabank Arena on Wednesday. For 35 years now, he has been not if not only perhaps the sole provider at times, but one of the main maestros at all Leafs home games. He is the organist. Have a listen. Ladies and gentlemen, will you please rise if you're able to remove your hats and join organist Jimmy Holmstrom in the performance of our national anthem. Yeah, you, you might not know the name. But you've certainly heard his work if you've ever watched a Leafs game, right? Imagine he was hired back in 1988 when the team still played at Maple Leaf Gardens. Harold Ballard was still the owner. Gord Stellick was the GM. He hired him. Boria Salming was one of the assistant captains, or he was one of the captains in his last season as a Leaf. And Holmstrom played for the very first time at Maple Leaf Gardens. He has not missed a home game since. 35 years. Here's another taste. Yeah, that's that's from right up in his perch, sort of overlooking the rink. Now, you can imagine he really has to pay close attention to the game because he's watching to see what's happening so he can be in tune. He also sounds the the goal horn when they score, or he plays hollow notes as you make my dreams when they score. Speaking of scoring, the Leafs have just scored again. It's 4-4 now near the end of the third. So they could be looking to wrap up this series, their first first round win since 2004 uh, on, on when they play game five, just maybe. They haven't won yet. It's tie game, late third. Um, but to celebrate playoff hockey with the all the with three Canadian teams still playing, we wanted to know what it's like 
to be behind the keys in one of hockey's great meccas, following one of hockey's great teams. And joining me now from Toronto is none other than Jimmy Holmstrom. Jimmy, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you for having me, Ben. This is great talking all the way across the country. It is. And what an exciting time of year for you, too. There must be, I mean, I know I've been to playoff games in the past, but even for, for you who see so many games, the playoffs must be something off the charts. I, I can't begin to tell you the, the feeling that we had done in game two. Sometimes I didn't have to play any music. I didn't have to, you know, make any noise. The fans were insanely loud, like out of this world. And like, wow, it was, it's, it's stupendous to sit there and feel that because that emotion sweeps right through you as a fan, but it sweeps through the players too. And that accounted for their incredible response in game two. I've been to lots of hockey games over the years. You're kind of trying to figure out what the crowd mood is and whether you should be lifting them up or playing along. I mean, a lot of it is sort of like you're kind of trying to play with the crowd, right? Move them and shape them and or just follow along some nights. Well, absolutely. That was the original job. When I started back in the 80s, there was nothing but me to try to, you know, hopefully get the crowd going and or be a part of it, of entertainment, let's just say. But now we've got such a great group of uh, game operations uh, people, audio, video, DJ, me. Like, there's so many of us. It's, like, it's wonderful. My my manager, my game ops director, she tells me this would be a good idea, and I jump all over it. I'll jump in with something, and she'll say, that was a good idea. So, you know, I, I'll give kudos to Taylor Dean, my boss, because right. she's got she's got her finger on all the buttons I remember when I had to do it myself, but that's a long time ago, and I'm so glad for the opportunity to sit back and be told what to do sometimes. How's that? <laughs> yeah, I, I remember those old days. I mean, whether it was the Forum or Maple Leaf Garden, I hear you had a bit of, a bit of a precarious perch at Maple Leaf Garden. It was scary. I, I, I won't blame the official, but the back in ninety two, ninety three series is Stanley Cup. Yes. We got we got down to the you know to the last round. Well, one time there was a call on the ice that was so blatantly wrong. I jumped up on the organ bench, and the organ bench is like an old organ bench, four legs that are made of, uh, you know, cheap balsa wood. Yeah. And I threw my hands. I lost I, lo- I lost my uh, cool. I threw my hands up and just like, how could you call that? You? And then I realized I'm on the bench. I popped the ceiling tile above my head and started to rock on this bench. Oh, no. And there was, there was two directions to go. I went the right direction. Thank goodness. And uh, I calmed down for the next period for a little bit. It took a lot. But, yeah, it, 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 it it's crazy because... It's like a 12-story drop from my perch, and there was, uh, you, I know, I wasn't wearing any safety harnesses. <laughs> no, that would have been, I, I mean, I remember being in the press box at the Forum, for instance, which had sort of similar similar falls, and you'd think, wow, this is way up. Well, I'm way it's, up. It, yeah, it's, it's scary. It, 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 it did have its moments of, yeah, claustrophobia I didn't have. I have it now, but I didn't have it then. <laughs> <laughs> you have a much, I, I've seen where you are at, uh, at Scotiabank, and it's, it's, it's a much nicer, like it's, it looks like a roomier spot for you to be in. It must have changed a lot. I mean, everyone thinks of the organ at a hockey game, and I think we think of Chicago Stadium, you know, or some grand thing, but you have a whole setup behind you now. Like, you're, you've, you're, you're pretty well equipped up there. 
Yes, and I, I thank all my partners over the years who, who made sure I had the state-of-the-art equipment. Uh, Robert Lowry, Long McQuaid, Rolling Canada, all these people have always helped me, uh, you know, bailed me out when I needed musical equipment help. You know, it's, it's been awesome. I got more keyboards than I know what to do with. I may just open my own store when I retire, you know what I mean? <laughs> and it, it, it is lovely because then, as I said to one boss a while back, why do you need so many organs? I said, what if one fails? That's all. That's all it took. No more discussion because I do take up a lot of room. I apologize. And back in Harold Ballard's days, I don't think he would have put up with me taking no. up all the room. You used to sit. You used to be right on top of Harold Ballard, right way back uh, then. Yes, I was very careful not to lean over too far. Yes, that's right. That's when you started. How did you get into this? It was back back in the late eighties, right? It it was the mid to late eighties. Kudos to Gord Stellick and his brother Bob for keeping me. The Stellicks made sure I got in. Uh, they got Harold to hire me. But there were several organists, and um, they all seemed to uh, disappear, uh, <laughs> not in a bad way. This is not a Murdoch mystery. This is no. just they got asked to leave. And so I just changed the telephone number and kept going. That's all. I just kept showing up for work every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah just, I snuck I in the back door on Wood Street. I would, I would sneak up the back stairway, all 121 steps, run up there, sit down, start playing at 6 o'clock when the doors open. And as long as it was music, nobody realized there was, oh, oh like everything's under control. We don't have to call anybody. Yeah, so perfect. And that was the, uh, did you have to, I mean, you, you have to audition, obviously, right, for this? Well, Absolutely, absolutely. Now, I I I, I was a, a road musician. I did a lot of commercials because if you don't do commercials, you don't make any money as a musician. And I was uh, interviewed by Gord Stellick, and he put me in front of the uh, seventeen thousand five hundred people at Maple Leaf Gardens one night in the second period, and said, "You want to give it a go?" Just didn't have to ask me twice. And trial by fire but, too. Yeah, but you know what? When you're a kid, literally, you, you got no fear. You know, I mean, hey, right. I played in I played in places like Hull, Quebec, Montreal, uh, yeah. Hearst, Horn Pain. I mean, I played in places I took my life in my hands many times. This was nothing, right? Much safer <laughs> than playing the organ at Maple Leaf Gardens. So there's been such a change, right, in, in the atmosphere at rinks now. I mean, it's just so much more when you go in. The screens are different. There's Everything's just so much bigger and louder, I find. Oh, you like loud? I don't okay. mind loud. I don't mind loud. I mean, it depends. Sometimes it can be a bit. It'd be a bit loud, but it, uh, I'm also getting older, right? So don't listen to me. Okay, sorry, that just got <laughs> sidetracked again. <laughs> Life being a Maple Leaf fan is fantastic. Be a part of the uh, uh, the show is even more awesome. I got a chance in '86, '87 season, but there were so many other people there. I didn't get another chance till basically '87, '88. That said. Once I got in there, I'd have done anything to make sure I kept coming back for more, and I have. So the fact is, in 88, I, I did a preseason game. Uh, Gord said, do you want to come back for next week? I said, sure. Then he can, after that game, can you back him another game? Yeah, I can come back. I have never missed a game since because I knew if I missed a game, they'll bring one of the other guys back. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're like being a goaltender. You never want to give up your spot, right? Just in case the backup comes in and shines, you know? Not that that would ever happen. So what is the best part about, about the job? And what's the, what's the one part about the job that people really don't understand? Because your timing's impeccable, by the way, and it has to be. Well, Ben, the hardest part of the job is not being able to blink because I watch the play not as a fan, which I am totally 100%, but as a part of the show. If there's a goal, I have to react. I hit the goal horn. If it's an opposing team's goal, I got to react and hit a sound bite of some sort so that I make sure that there's no nonsense from the crowd. Because you, 
You don't want the other team scoring and anybody in the crowd sharing. I don't care if there's one person. I don't want to hear the other person. You drown them out. You drown them out. (laughs) If I can, that's what that's what I do. When there's a penalty, I I come on with a penalty sound uh, song. I'll either play song on the organ or uh, or a soundbite again. That's uh, you know I'm sorry or uh, you know (laughs) bad guy. Ooh, I am a bad guy. You don't play play three blind mice anymore, right? Is that one out? Because that used to be that was sort of the original one when the refs made a mistake. Well, I have a good old friend who's retired from the NHL officiating. Um, his name is Brian Lewis. Yes. And he told me, he told me, and, and I, I, I love the guy when we worked together because he used to always threaten me, which was great because he scared <laughs> me. He's a big man. I'm a little guy. Anyway, uh, he came in one night and said, did you play three blind mice? I said, no, sir, I'd never play that. And he said, good, because if you do, I'm throwing you over the side. And at the gardens, you know, I'd already told you the side yeah. of that building is scary. Like there's no, there's nothing to stop him from pushing me over. Anyway, he was kidding. But it, I never played it. No, never, never, never played it. Now there's four blame. I'm now there's four people on the ice. Now there's four people. You can't play it anymore. It only made sense before they brought in the extra referee. Yeah, that's um, it. What do you? I mean, you've been. I know just from reading about you that you know your mom brought you to the Maple Leafs last Stanley Cup parade in '67. You've been a lifelong fan of the team. It obviously you need. I mean, you need to be a fan of the team to do your job with the kind of heart you need to do it well, right? I have a home office, of course, a rehearsal studio and all, and I must have uh, 40 jerseys. I bought every single one of them, and there's all the money I've ever made. (laughs) I've got pictures and posters and banners and hockey pucks signed, so many things autographed. That's what I do. I'm a fan. I'm, I'm, I'm one of the guys that goes... You know, go to these out, outlets and these malls, you know, sign, oh, come and see what's his name. He's signing today. You know, I'm one of those guys in those lines and always have been. Really? Uh, absolutely. I, yeah. I go right back to Lanny McDonald and Daryl Sittler. I would go see them when I was really young. You know, I'd have a, a, a magazine or a newspaper and they'd sign it for me. And I'm going to admit I am not a hockey fan. I'm a Toronto Maple Leaf fan. And that's right. it. I'll work for whoever MLSC asks me to, but because we're all in the same group and club and I love them all. I played for the Marlies. Oh my gosh. Uh, Just so much good stuff, but I would never quit to go to another, you know, sports team ever. I was, I'm sticking with the Leafs. You're, you're, you're white and blue through and through. So, so to speak. Bingo. Uh, And and the best part about the job, I mean, one of the things that I would have, well, I would find stressful even as a fan is having to watch the team all the time, because that's, that's, it can be, it could be, especially the way you have to watch it. So attentively, um, it can be really stressful and really disappointing sometimes when your team doesn't win. I'm definitely up and down, just like, you know, every, every fan is when, when, when the team does, does poorly or does well, that, that, that just goes with the territory, but I can never, ever, ever let it affect the game. I'm playing goal Leafs go right to the bitter, bitter end whether right. we're winning 10 to 1 or losing, which that never happens. And basically, let's be honest, in the last five or six years, I don't remember call us losing a game at home because we just seem to have such a great home record. I'm, I'm basically pumped all the time, and it's exciting all the time. They're few and far between, Ben. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. And your favorite, what are your favorite things to play? What do you love, what do you love playing the most? I mean, I, I know that your repertoire could be both quite, quite broad, by the way. I mean, I was reading through different comments about all the – you kind of keep up – you keep up with modern music, play modern tunes – but there are the go-to classics, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, I can sit here and play them, but we've run out of time. Go Leafs Go, uh, Zorba, uh, Havana Gila, yeah. uh, Irish, Irish Washerwoman, uh, like so many, so many, uh, you know, tunes that make the people. Yeah, just dance and clap. And, yeah, and make them go. And they're, and they're songs you associate with a hockey game, which I think is, I remember, the, I, I can't hear the Mexican hat dance without thinking about, 
about the Montreal Forum? Well, I, I used to play that a lot, but not anyway. There's songs like this. Oh, yeah. That's new. <laughs> That's newer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. There's so many things I can do, but the classics and, you know, jump. Um, jump, yeah. You know, they, these are like tried and true things that work in the, in the crowd. As long as the crowd are, are stomping or clapping or are participating, it's great. Jimmy Holmstrom, I'll be, uh, we'll be listening. We'll be listening. How's that? Uh, thanks so much for your time tonight. What a, what a fascinating job you have. Thank you, Ben. And thanks for calling me out and, you know, giving me a chance to uh, shoot my mouth off. How's that? Well, there we are. That was the final moments in in it. It was a big, big weekend in Wrexham in in, uh, in Northern Wales. Uh, Wrexham AFC, after 15 years out of league football or league soccer, uh, that's the top four divisions in uh, in the soccer leagues that comprise both England and Wales, have been promoted back up. They won the championship with a win over Boreham Wood on Saturday. Of course, this is a big moment if you're Canadian because there is no more popular national league team let alone league two team in canada right now than wrexham uh ryan reynolds is co-owner of the team he's one of the most popular actors out there certainly one of the most popular in this country but there is that one place tonight where he may be more loved than anywhere else and that is in the northwestern welsh city of wrexham the vancouver board actor along with friend and fellow actor rob McElhenney, um are owners of the local football or soccer team. And uh, unlike hockey here, as I was trying to explain, you know that in, in football and in soccer, if you do well, you get promoted, you get bumped up to the league above you. And if you do badly, you get relegated and dropped down. So it's, it's, it can be decimating to a team to be relegated. And of course, about 15 years ago, Wrexham were relegated out of what is considered league football, the top four divisions, um, into non-league. And they went through some really tough times. And then over the weekend, since this new ownership team have come in, they've brought Hollywood to to Wrexham and they've brought stability and success as well. And it's been kind of a really feel-good story. They have, of course, a miniseries about it called Welcome to Wrexham that you may have seen. Um, but over the weekend, yeah, it was a really big deal. If they All they needed was a win over Boreham Wood and they, and they secured the championship too far ahead of Knott's County to be caught up to. And uh, they did it three to one. Here's the trophy presentation. Wrexham are the 2023 National League champions. It was a great, I mean, the moment the final whistle blew, every fan in the stadium uh, ended up on the pitch, ended up on the field. And it was just, it was one of those great moments to see. It's been such a great feel-good story. Now, of course, a lot of it was, all of it's been documented to some extent over the last few seasons in that FX series called Welcome to Wrexham. And as part of it, they brought on a Welsh translator, of course. And that Welsh translator is a former BBC journalist now living in Washington, a Wrexham fan herself, Maxine Hughes. Here she is. This is Maxine, and she is our Welsh translator. Dyma Maxine in Cyfeithydd Cymraeg. Our new show on FX is called Welcome to Wrexham, a docuseries centered in Wrexham, a working-class town in North Wales in the United Kingdom. And earlier this year, we became owners of the football club in Wrexham, and we thought it was only appropriate for our Welsh fans to have a translator. Mae'r un tala tenen actio mewn ffilmiau, a mae'r un hefo'r cyhyran 
Birthday House of Philadelphia in Arabath. Did she say Philadelphia? Because I, I didn't say Philadelphia. Oh, no. I mean, it's Welsh. <laughs> it is Welsh, Rob. <laughs> it's probably just sounded like Philadelphia. Maxine, how do you say Philadelphia in Welsh? Philadelphia. <laughs> and Maxine Hughes joins us now. Max, congratulations. What a great weekend. Yeah, it's been unbelievable. I think uh, we're all still celebrating, whether in Wrexham, Washington, Hollywood. Um, I think uh, everybody's got a bit of a sore head after that weekend. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, for those, for the uninitiated um, to this whole story, uh, Wrexham, the football club, are a huge part of the community and had fallen on some pretty tough times over the past 15 years. And this has been, I mean, not to over, not to exaggerate, but this has been a Cinderella story in many ways. Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, it's a story made for Hollywood. Um, you know, Wrexham's always sort of uh, been an area of North Wales that suffered quite a lot of hardship. Um, you know, it is quite an impoverished area, uh, particularly, you know, um, during COVID, you know, it affected a lot of the local businesses. But, you know, it's it's an area of North Wales that has high uh, levels of child poverty um, and uh, it, it struggled. And, you know, the, the football team something that's kept the community together. Um, and it's been through thick and thin that that community stepped by that that team. Um, the football team, you know, as as you mentioned, it, it was uh, falling. It did suffer a lot of hard times. It went into the hands of the of the trust, um, and it was then that uh, that Rob and Ryan uh, made their bid for the team, and they had to uh, they had to make a bid to the trust to the uh, to the community, uh, and the community had to approve them and allow them to buy the team, which of course they did. Um, and uh, from then on, uh, things, you know, did start to look up. But uh, this really is a story of, you know, it's, it's a Hollywood story. It's a, it's a fairy tale story, but it, it isn't just a story about two people from Hollywood. You know, it's a story of, of, of a community in, in North Wales. And um, it, it, this story belongs to the people of Wrexham. Yeah, for listeners, if you were looking at a map, Wrexham is actually closer to Liverpool and Manchester and Stoke than it is to Swansea and Cardiff, right? It's 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 way up there. Uh, you're you're from a family of Wrexham, longtime Wrexham fans. Like this is this is uh, this is in the blood. Yeah, I mean, my dad is uh, from Wrexham. His family's from Wrexham, and uh, for me, you know, it's quite a um, it's been quite a personal journey because um, when I was growing up, uh, I lived actually about. 40 minutes from Wrexham and my uh, my dad's father, my grandfather had died before I, I was born. And so I never really had the connection to Wrexham that I could have done. And, I, you know, I always was very aware of the family on that side coming from Wrexham. But, you know, later on as a journalist, um, I did a lot of work covering covering Wales. And Wrexham was one of those places that you go, you know, to cover the the, the harder stories, you know, the, the right. crime or the uh, the poverty. And, you know, for me now to kind of, come back to Wrexham and, and, and be able to see the town, you know, the local businesses, the community flourish as, as they are doing. It's, it's been a wonderful journey. How did you get involved with the miniseries? Um, well, there was a casting call actually uh, in the US for a Welsh speaker, which obviously well, doesn't right. happen very often. No. Um, and uh, we, we, uh, we all thought it was a bit of a joke, um, you know, as Welsh speakers here. So uh one of my friends uh, said, you know, can you can you call them up and see if it's real? Because, you know, we all want to try out if it is. So I, I gave them a call and, and indeed it was. And they asked me to try and I, I did a reading and, um, you know, I got a call back. It's just a, you know, regular process for a casting call, really. And then uh, they offered me the role. And, and next minute I was in Hollywood on set with, with Rob and Ryan. 
How was that? I mean, I mean, the, 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 the promo, we played a little bit of it. I, I, I'm sorry I couldn't translate the Welsh for the audience, but you essentially say that, that uh, Rob McElhinney is, it sort of sells Philadelphia cream cheese. That's the Philadelphia came, came out there. Um, but how was that? Because you, 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 you took a real star turn yourself there. People loved, your, loved what you had to say. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was it was such a, an interesting experience. You know, I'm a journalist. I uh, you know uh, run around the U.S. most of the time, and you know, with 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 just me or me and, and, and somebody with a camera. So to go onto a Hollywood set with uh, with so many people was quite um, intimidating to be, to begin with. Um, but you know, Rob and Ryan made me feel very comfortable. Uh, I know everybody in Canada obviously is uh, a huge fans of Ryan, and you know, he really was fantastic um you know he directed a lot of the promo that we did we did a lot of improvisation it was a lot of fun uh, but the thing i think that really kind of stood out was that you know they had made a conscious effort um right from the beginning to include the welsh language in this mm-hmm. um you know they they decided to do a promo to announce the um the series using welsh and, and not using welsh in a way that you know some of us from wales have unfortunately had to deal with in the past which is making fun of the language this was us making fun of them um and and that i yes, think indeed. for the people of wales really got us off to the to a good start for them you know it, it kind of cemented them as people who respected the language you know who respects the culture and who wanted to um to, to get involved and to learn welsh you know and, and actually the first time the very first time i was on set with them uh rob McElhenney sang the welsh national anthem to me uh, he'd already Did heard he? it so i was blown yeah i was blown away by that, that um so yeah it was it was quite something that is remarkable. I spent time in Wales. I think when I was working in London, we used to have to. When when Kate and Will were living in Wales, I'd have to go up there occasionally to do stories. And I I, I hate to say it, I've never been able to pronounce a Welsh word properly all these years. You know, you sort of some some languages you can kind of grasp, and I've always had trouble with Welsh. But I kept trying. I kept trying. Um, but but and yeah, that's, it, all, the, and that's for, for Welsh people. That's what we love. You know, when people when people give it a go, and obviously you know Rob and Ryan have done that, so we've loved that. Yeah, I mean, it, it isn't a given that you bring in sort of Hollywood owners into a, into a, a franchise like that, into a into a club like that, a very much a local community club. It doesn't always work out, right? People can rub each other the wrong way quite quickly, and it struck me that that they had it figured out. There was a certain genuineness about their passion for it that seemed to be infectious for the community. Yeah, I think so. I think um, you know they're both from quite sort of you know ordinary backgrounds. I think for Rob particularly, you know, he grew up in Philadelphia in Pennsylvania, um, and I think that there are a lot of um, things that reminded him of, of Pennsylvania when he first went to Wrexham. And and actually, you know, there are great links between uh, Wales and Pennsylvania. Many people from Wales left Wales to go and and, and work the mines in Pennsylvania. And right. Rob grew up. Uh, seeing Welsh names, you know, in, in the city and not knowing that they were Welsh at the time. But I remember because I, I was with them actually the first time they visited Wrexham and we, you know, I went to that first game with them together. And, you know, Rob said, you know, when I look out, I, I sort of reminds me of, of Pennsylvania, reminds me of Philadelphia. I really feel at home here. So I think that's been a big part of it. But I think, you know, uh, the way that they've come at it, you know, they've they've wanted to get involved in the community. They haven't come at it as as Hollywood stars, you know, they were very, very aware of the fact that they had to get the permission of the trust and win over uh, the supporters just so that they could buy the club. Um, and that's kind of, you know, how they went into this. And they've continued in that way, really, you know, uh, understanding that they that they have to win over the community, that they have to um, secure and maintain the, the trust of, of the supporters. And, you know, it's gone from strength to strength. They've, they've also won over 
the, the hearts of the people of Wales too. So this, Maxine, just as being being part of it, I guess this story now continues. I mean, the issue with football, of course, is that League Two is a whole other set of challenges next year and expectations will be relatively high. But are people relatively positive about uh, about what the future could look like for Wrexham now that they're moving back up the pyramid? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, of course, you know, given what's happened over the weekend, there's, there's uh, positivity definitely bringing through the streets of Wrexham at the moment. Um, you know, Rob and Ryan have got very high hopes for the team. You know, they, they've spoken before about how, how they want them to go all the way to the Premier League. Obviously, that's that's a far, far way to go from, from where they are now. But, you know, who knows? Yeah. What's it like to be at the race course ground? I mean, I think what's odd about it is that I think you mentioned this. I saw you doing a BBC interview over the weekend that so many people now, whether they be American or Canadian, actually know Wrexham for its football or for its soccer team. And that, I mean, that's remarkable in of itself because, you know, three years ago, if you had told someone, you know, where's Wrexham and do they have a football team? I can't imagine they would have known much too much about it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, it would have been only locals really that would have would have really known that. I mean, a, a few years ago, or even you know, just sort of three years ago, that they were having real trouble filling that stadium. You know, the amount of people going to watch the games was just kind of dropping. Um, you know, you'd, you'd watch the games, and it was a sort of sorry sight, really. There was, you know, very bare stands, and and now people can't get tickets. You know, that's absolutely bursting to the, to the state seams. Um, and when Robin Ryan took over, actually, that, that stadium really needed a lot of work. So they have spent quite a lot of time and, and, and energy helping with those upgrades over the last um, couple of years, you know, and, and just uh, making it into a much more comfortable and uh, nicer looking stadium. But obviously, you know, as the team continues to uh, to do well, um, you know, the, the attention to Wrexham is, is going to increase. Um, it is a small stadium, uh, so... You know, I, I can't imagine a, a, the, the team of Wrexham without uh, without the race course, a kaidas, we call it in Welsh. Um, but, yeah. you know, who knows? One day, you know, if, if, if they keep going as they are going, that, that stadium is going to feel very small. Yes, yes, because I mean, it, it looked it looked like it was bursting at the seams on Saturday, and you know, you spent a lot, you spent time in the states now, and now Maxine. So you know, I mean, the difference between sort of North American sport and, and sport in, in Britain is quite fundamental because there is no such thing as relegation and promotion, right? So these Cinderella stories, the way they unfold, there's this much sort of wider narrative arc about the fall and, and the rebirth when it comes to a team like Wrexham uh, than you would say see say in in, in you know American sport. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, as as the um, season goes on, you know, you, you are kind of sort of hoping, obviously, if your team's near the top, that you're going to go up, and obviously, you know, if your if your team's near the bottom, you you know, you're, you're hoping and praying that that you don't get relegated. So it's definitely a kind of it's a very sort of all or nothing feeling um, in in uh, sport in the UK sometimes, particularly in uh, in sports like football, which you don't really get in North America in the same way. Um, and I think that's part of why there is this just immense passion you know that you feel when you're in those stands and you know as you saw with the with the Wrexham match uh, on, on Saturday that that kind of passion when people just flooded out onto the pitch you know th- these people have been following this team for many for I mean there's people there that are 90 years old and have been lifelong yes. fans you know so so it, it really is that kind of feeling of you know really achieving something when when you when you move up you know 
Yeah, I, I, they were grown men in tears, including <laughs> including Ryan Reynolds. I think. On the, <laughs> I mean, the, the passion of it is is kind of hard to describe. When you know, in in American sports, if if you do really badly and have a terrible season, maybe you have a high draft pick the next year, and people just sort of forget about it. You know, you wear fans protest; they wear bags on their heads and sort of things like that. But but in, in Britain, I mean, you get, you drop down to another division, and it's a big change. I mean, I'm, I'm an AFC Wimbledon fan, which is not a great thing to be these days. We'll be playing each other next year, Max. We're playing each other next year. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, which, we'll have another chat then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'll see. Well, the teams are on different paths right now, unfortunately. Uh, so we'll see what happens there. But Wimbledon had, had one of those meteoric rises from have, having lost their team and then reborn, and the way down in the lower divisions that worked their way all the way up. Uh, but But so this, I mean, I guess in the end, this has just been a really magical story for Wrexham man for for its uh, for for all of us watching from abroad because it has this connection to people we know like Ryan Reynolds. Yeah, I mean definitely obviously for people in Canada, you know, um Ryan's involvement I'm sure has has made the series and the story um something that, you know, that they can connect with. Um you know, and obviously there are so many connections between uh, between Wales and, and and Canada between the UK and Canada already. So um you know, I think that that exists as as it is. You know, people in Canada for example do know uh, or did know already before Wrexham before the story of Wrexham and Ryan buying Wrexham where where Wales was and that I, I've got to say it hasn't been the same necessarily uh, in the US, it's not what True. I experienced when I first came to work here. You know, because uh, people didn't know where Wales was at all. They would hear me speaking Welsh to my children and think I was speaking a Scandinavian language. Whereas that is right. changing. You know, they they have sort of seen seen the show on FX on Hulu and and um, you know when I say I come from Wales, you know I've had experiences, um, you know, down in in, in sort of areas of small towns in florida where somebody said oh you know i want to go and have a pint at, at, at the turf which is the <laughs> pub at, uh, at wrexham you know it yeah. blew me away really so it, it, it definitely it has changed things you know um especially for americans well that's uh it's great to hear it and again congratulations on the championship and we look forward to seeing you in uh in the second division in league two next year max thank you so much for your time tonight thank you <laughs> Well, this past Saturday was Earth Day, the 53rd, since its inception back in 1970. I always have an easy time remembering that, as I said on Friday, because I was born that same year. A day to reflect on the on the state of this planet we all call, call home and whether we're doing enough to protect it, really, from ourselves. Um, here is UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres with her, his Earth Day message. From the air we breathe, to the water we drink, to the soil that grows our foods, Humanity's health depends on the health of Mother Earth. This Earth Day, I urge people everywhere to raise your voices in your schools, workplaces and faith communities and on social media platforms and demand leaders make peace with nature. Let us all do our part to protect our common home for the sake of people and planet right now and for the generations to come. Of course, you know, climate has been one of those top of mind topics, uh, most mainly of late, but really since, you know, since I was born back in 1970, it's one of those things we talked about, whether it was acid rain or the ozone layer and then onto climate change and so on. We've been talking about it. It feels like a lot, at least in my lifetime. But the truth is, many of our human ancestors have worried about the specter of famine and disease, of rains that never come and floods that never cease for ages, for ages. Climate isn't a backdrop to the history of humanity. It has, and has always been, according to my next guest, central to our collective story. Take, for example, the Akkad Empire, which ruled over a large part of Mesopotamia and what is now Iraq. In his new book, The Earth Transformed, author Peter Frankopin describes how leader Narab Sin was seen to have defied the gods and lost divine 
favor when the rain stopped, the crops failed, rampant inflation set in, starvation, chaos, all of it. It was known as the curse of a cod. And that's often the way we looked at it. We had angered the gods and therefore they they wreaked climate pain on us. We were made to pay for it. But of course, it wasn't a curse at all. Scientists have now discovered over the years that there was a sudden change in the climate in the region at the time, a so-called evaporation event that uh, played into why things, crops, you know, the rains didn't fall and the crops didn't grow. And this all happened more than 4,000 years ago. It's another reminder, one of many's in, many in the book, about how empires, how the climate is fragile and empires are more fragile than we think especially when confronted with ecological shocks. Well, joining me now is historian and author Peter Frankopan. Again, his latest novel is called, or his latest book is called The Earth Transformed. Peter, thank you. Thank you for having me, Ben. This is a remarkable, I mean, it, it, within about six, 700 pages, you managed to cover billions of years of history. But what's so fascinating about looking into it is that it's the kind of book you probably couldn't have written 50 years ago, because it depends a lot on the scientific advances we've seen of late and the ability to access so much of that documentation, well, perhaps from the comfort of, uh, well, not too far from home. I think 50 years ago, all history books tended to be about great men and the great deeds that they did. And so I think there's a, there's been all sorts of shifts. I mean, but it's absolutely right. The thing that is moving by far the fastest in history at the moment is not the discovery of texts, although that, that does sometimes happen, but the, the integration of the sciences into the way we think about history. So uh, genomics, the ways we can think about disease, not just how people wrote about it, but you can measure in bones and you can see how people died and what from and what levels of exposure they had through to lots of materials about, about climate. So uh, tree rings that will tell you how much rainfall levels changed, sediment levels in lakes that will tell you about water levels as well as other things too. And then things like fossilized pollen that will show you how much disturbance there's been in, in the landscape. So it means that we don't just have to rely on what people wrote about and how they wrote about it, which was a historian skill. It's now we've got so much more precision. It's it's almost like in The Wizard of Oz of that transition, which some of your listeners will probably not know what that mean, what that <laughs> film is, but it's, it's a film that, that where Dorothy shifts from black and white into full technicolor. Mm -hmm. And we, we are living through this incredible revolution right now where the opportunities to confirm, to reshape, to think, to nuance the past. I mean, it's so, it's so, so exciting to be doing some of this. And when you look at it from the perspective of this book, too, it's, it's interesting that while we don't often think of the history of climate and our own history, the history of civilization, so to speak, it's it's intertwined. It, it's it, it seems strange that we haven't paid more attention to it in the past because the way you lay it out, it seems so blatantly obvious how important climate has been in shaping who we are and where we are now. That that's the nicest compliment you can ever give an author, Ben, is <laughs> is to say something looks obvious after it's been spelled out. Because um, I think that 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 is that is that is right. I mean, look, there are, there are lots of environmental historians, and in fact, not just colleagues and and friends of mine writing today. I mean, there were envi environmental historians writing four or 5,000 years ago. Some of the very, very first texts are about warnings about ecological degradation, about the changing landscape and about how precarious life becomes if you're not sustainable. So, I mean, even things like the Bible, you know, the, the Torah, the book of Genesis, and also which is imp imp hugely important in Islam, is that the story of the creation is one where God creates a perfect world where everything is required. And then the last thing he does is, is to make man a woman. And when Adam and Eve disobey God's instructions, they're punished environmentally and ecologically. So it, it speaks, I think, to the idea that we've always been aware that living beyond your means or 
changes and subtle changes to to the animals and plants that we rely on can expose us all to great to great dangers and of course that has a that has a a resonance in today's world for sure it does and one of the things i mean there are many examples within the book and i suggest listeners go go read it but there are many examples within uh the book of how you know, ecological disaster has has brought down empires, has changed the course of history, whether it be the Roman Empire, you, you speak, I didn't know much about the curse of Akkad. So that's a really good one as well. But there are many examples within the book of how just how fragile empires can be, and how subtle shifts in, in climate for in many instances, whether it be a volcanic eruption or drought, could all of a sudden bring down, bring down what appear to be very stable empires. Yeah, I guess that that that's it's partly how we think about history. There's obviously a lot of attention on 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 things that fail and on you know empires that collapse and societal collapse, and, and they, they they get given give, given quite a lot of prominence. I mean, generally, empires don't normally fail. I mean, well, I'm the generation of Star Wars, so when I watched the first Star Wars film, the empire ended because the Death Star was blown up. And but it turns out when you get to sort of into the sequels that it doesn't ever die. You know, right. they, you know, they keep on going those dark forces. But so empires they, they never tend to sort of go out in a in a in a big explosion. It, it's always sort of relatively gentle, managed sag where things just become a bit more tired. I mean, I guess in in Canada you 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 had the joys of watching Downton Abbey, and it's yes. just the, the big the big grand house that is fully staffed with servants, and then things change, and then there are slightly fewer, and you you don't offer the best champagne anymore, and then. You know the, the the Lord has to go and the Lord of the house has to go and like fix the roof. So th- those are kind of recognizable things. But I think that what 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 happens with 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 our own household budgets as well is that you know if you have a shock, then there's a problem. So you're used to getting you have your, your your annual wage, you're used to getting your salary, and you're used to knowing what your expenditure is, and, and you can cope if you know that in twenty years time you you've got college to pay for, if you've got trips you want to do, then you can plan for them. But where there's a real compression is where suddenly your salary levels fall, your income falls, and all your costs go up. And, and that's really hard to negotiate. And I guess empires like households, like like states, that's where the problem is. It's not that there's stability or there's there's changes in climate and so on that, are, that take you by surprise. It's the, it's the volatility. It's the sudden shock that makes it very hard to adapt. And if you're caught in the wrong place at the wrong time, with a bank crisis or interest rates going up or inflation, some of the things we've seen in the last 12, 18 months, then 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 things suddenly look quite precarious. So it's planning ahead that's the key. And the Roman Empire was very lucky above all, which I write about in the Roman Climate Optimum. The, 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 it wasn't that it rained a lot or it rained a little that was the key to the Roman success. It was that for the, the 250 years where Rome really became a superpower, it was completely predictable. And you didn't have heavy levels of solar activity, you didn't have big volcanic eruptions, you didn't have the big disruptors that get in the way of what planning means. But when those things do appear in around about the 230s onwards for the next 30, 40 years, there's a great deal of climate instability. It doesn't take much for that whole tapestry to come tumbling down. And I think that's the kind of model, I think, for for thinking about empires and also in the present day too, is that when you're all deeply connected, in fact, as we've seen in the last few years, one bat in Wuhan, changes the world as we know it and we we tend to think of empires as being robust and big and too big to fail but it's actually small little planks small spokes in the in the in the wheels that can 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 make these things happen peter frankopin is an author and historian his latest book is called the earth transformed peter this i didn't know this but this is something that i think is actually someone else's quote but that about half of the carbon fuel burnt in in the history of of humankind has has been or the co2 emissions i gather has been made since seinfeld made its debut is that is that is that a fact 
Yeah, that's that's David Wallace Wells, the right. New York Times environment correspondent, who's a, who wrote a brilliant book called The Inhospitable Earth um, a few years ago. And, uh, you know, it's, it's quite a staggering one. And depending how old you are, you know, you can pick a benchmark for, for my, you know, my generation, our generation. But that, that was, it was uh, the, the Berlin Wall falling was the kind of seminal event, I guess, Absolutely, in the last yeah. years. And, and right now, when we think about uh, war in Ukraine, we wonder whether the Soviet Union really collapsed and the Cold War ever ended. Is Russia yeah. a kind of Soviet empire in disguise? The changes that happened in 1989 weren't just in 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 Russia or former or, or, or Soviet Union as it was, but also the the lessons that were learnt about that in in China, where they had the Tiananmen Square mm-hmm. massacre in, in June of that year, changed China, where China suddenly opened up to outside investment and and suddenly massively increased its energy demands burning of fossil and building of energy plants so you know so that 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 world which is so it doesn't even feel that long ago to me let alone in 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 recorded history marked a real acceleration in in lots of things that have been good for us on the planet we've all worked out how to fly from a to b cheaper and quicker than ever before we can buy things online that will arrive the next day and we don't know where exactly they've been made and but they've been made quite cheaply and that that's made that's democratized us in lots of ways, but that has also come at a real ecological cost. And that cost isn't just about global warming and, and burning of carbon. It's also about degradation of the natural landscapes, of pollution, of the ways in which we've shifted production from you know nice, pristine, rich countries like my one in the UK or you guys in Canada, but other parts of the world where in Asia, where I've written about before with the Silk Roads, about two thirds of the world's population live, and that's also home to four hundred ninety six of the world's 500 most polluted cities. Indeed, yeah. And and some of that production is not making stuff for just for us. It's, you know, internal markets inside these countries individually and collectively is hugely important. But that that shock of, of 1989 that changed the world, made it what we all thought a transition towards liberal democracies, that that didn't happen. Uh, greater friendship and stability globally, that doesn't look like it's happening. A greater ways of of learning from each other, you know, it's it's that's a it's a precarious world that we're facing now in in 2023. And the climate side of it was an important part of marking the demand for, you know, more beef, for example, and and cutting down a rainforest or or things that I've written about in my book too that people don't realize. You know, that palm oil goes into making everything from lipstick to ice cream, and uh, you know that 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 means that the rate of deforestation in Southeast Asia has been profound and not just affecting the soils. It's also meant that the burning and clearing of forests means that air quality for across the whole of Southeast Asia, which doesn't include India and China, by the way, uh, is that every single man, woman and child has a one and a half year lower life expectancy than they would do if the air was at the level of World Health Organization standards. But it's below that for 99.9% of the population. So those kinds of things are thinking, what is the world we actually live in rather than the one on the newspapers about Boris Johnson or Trump or Justin Trudeau or Xi or Putin. It's a bit like history. What are the fundamentals that underpin underneath the individuals? And I think it's really important to think about the present day as well as in history in this kind of 3D, 360 degree way of of incorporating what is it that we have available that we can use to eat, to warm ourselves, to heat ourselves, to travel? And what are the costs of of degrading and getting through some of those resources? When you look to the future, I mean, we've had in the past little while, I, I feel like we've had events that our our for our forebears would recognize, you know, a pandemic, um, you know, ecological issues, heat domes, sort of, you know, the, it feels like the planet is acting in ways that, that the gods are angry to, to use an old term. But when you look when you look forward, 
there is cause for some optimism here too. I mean, I think we were both brought up in the 70s and the 80s when, you know, there was recognition of acid rain, recognition of the ozone, there was recognition of of the perils of of nuclear uh, nuclear uh, escalation for instance. If you look forward, do you find reason for optimism as well? I think so. I mean, you look, the, 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 lots of people have been predicting the end of the world since the beginning of time. I mean, some of the very earliest texts are apocalyptic and things like the flood of Noah that we know from the book of Genesis and the Torah and the Quran is also mentioned in Mesopotamian chronicles, texts written in Egypt. And so, you know, people have always pr- thought that we were going to all be a c- catastrophe, even in the 1960s, a book by Paul Ehrlich called The Population Bomb. Right. You know, it was extremely negative around rising populations. You know, but we are all still here in 2023, still standing. It's the highest population that the world has ever had. And for what it's worth, any child born, infant born while we're talking will have the highest life expectancy on Earth. Although, you know, funnily enough, the last couple of years in some developed countries, including the United States, life expectancies are starting to fall. But, you know, so there are lots of things that we do really well. And, and science and technology and innovation is part of that. Our, our resilience and our inventiveness is also part of that. We, we're surprisingly quite good when there's a crisis. We're probably not so good when everything's going well and we, we spend like there's no tomorrow. So, you know, I think one has to be pragmatic about the future. But, you know, it's probably not great that the levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere are the highest they've been for and will become the highest they've been for almost a million years quite soon. And we might be able to prevent some of that, slow some of it down. And, you know, I wouldn't bet against us. But if you do study history, uh, you'll learn that those great empires of the past aren't here anymore. The Romans aren't in charge anymore, nor nor is Venice, nor those Mesopotamians, nor the Mughals. And history is all about ability to adapt. And if you don't adapt, there are, are consequences. And I suppose thinking about as a as a uh, in terms of the natural environment we're, we're an animal too and uh, we can't beat biology so history of evolution is all about can you survive in the envelope in which you you're, you're living and for almost all of the world's past uh, the atmospheric conditions wouldn't have supported our life form so we, we need to be quite careful not to destroy our playgrounds we need to respect it but you know sometimes a good telling off and working out how we should live more sustainably you know it doesn't have to be contentious it doesn't have to be bad. It just it just needs taking responsibility for our own actions. Peter Frankopan, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Ben. All right, we are downtown Calgary and like you can never see Northern Lights or stars. This is crazy. This is just right off 17th. Holy moly. I'm blown away. There was a lot of that going on this weekend. That was a, uh, a tweet from someone in Calgary over the weekend. A lot of people were absolutely amazed by what they were watching in the night sky last night. And that, I mean, Calgary is pretty far south for the Northern Lights, right? I mean, I know they, I know you can see them at times. Usually light gets in the way or light pollution gets in the way. But there were uh, social media posts from absolutely everywhere yesterday, provided you had clear skies. We didn't here in where I am out on the Vancouver Island. It was cloudy, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, right across Canada, right across northern parts of the U.S. too. I was watching uh, photos from all over the place, from Minnesota, from Wisconsin. I mean, the, yeah, the northern lights were just on fire. And it's been fantastic. Some of the images are so alive. Uh, just the color scheme is is brilliant. And I was wondering what's going, I mean, I was reading about it because there was actually an alert that you got yesterday 
talking about these sort of high solar activity, high solar storm activity, and that this this could happen. You could actually see this sort of aurora borealis far further south than you normally would, and that this is an incredibly good time to head out and have a look, right? So we thought, well, why don't we find out a little bit more about what's going on? And why don't we head, you know, south of the border to the U.S.? Because they don't often get to see the northern lights that far south, uh, and they have. So we're dipping all the way down to the 43rd parallel, and Madison, Wisconsin, and uh, to find out a little bit more about what exactly is happening in the night skies these days that has them so absolutely alive. Scott Lidstrom is a scientist and trainer with the space scientist and trainer rather with the Space Science and Engineering Center at the University of Wisconsin Madison, and uh, he joins us now. Scott, thanks for your time tonight. I'm happy to be here. This was an interesting. I mean, I saw sort of. No, it's not often you see sort of alerts go out about about solar storms and one went out yesterday saying if it's clear get outside because the, the night sky is going to be magical tonight in places where you don't normally see the northern lights what's going on well we're in a period right now of a little bit increased solar activity there are instruments on the uh, go 16 and goes 18 which are goes east and goes west which are the satellite the geostationary satellites that have solar monitors on them. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where those alerts come from. The solar monitors detect there's increased solar activity. I mean, that just really means that there, there are more charged particles leaving the sun. Right. They're always leaving the sun and sometimes they direct their path so they intersect the orbit of the earth. And when they get close enough, um, they'll get caught in the magnetic poles those charged particles come down into the atmosphere. They uh, interact with nitrogen atoms and oxygen atoms, which are in the atmosphere. They charge them up a little bit. And then when those atoms lose that energy, they glow. And, oh, that's, wow. what you're, and that's what you're seeing in, in the aurora is you're seeing the, that solar energy being released by all the atoms in the atmosphere. It's, you know, I mean, as you know, here in Canada, people come here. They come here to travel north, far north usually, to have a look at the Northern Lights. And yet here they are. They're, they were very far south. Um, yeah, why, why travel? <laughs> why travel when you could stay at home and wherever, Victoria or Madison, Wisconsin or yeah. Portland and watch them out your front door? What's, what's going on? Why are they traveling so far south? I think it's just a function of the way the Earth is tilted right now, the increased solar activity. There's a, what is it, 18-year solar cycle. So maybe every 18 years, there's going to be an enhancement in how far south the uh, northern lights are going to go or how far north the southern lights are going to go. I wish I had seen them last night. I thought yes. it's going to be I thought it's going to be cloudy here. I went to bed. <laughs> you went to bed. And then of course you have, you were mentioning you have cameras on top of your building. So they captured what you, they captured what you slept through. Yeah. And I was surprised that they were color cameras. I mean, normally when I've looked at these cameras, because I look at them sometimes because we'll see meteors um, or lightning and it's always black and white, but I actually saw some color in it. So that was kind of exciting. Yeah. So they did travel as far south as Madison. I know that uh, it was cloudy out here in Victoria, so we didn't get a chance to. And I know that for a fact. I checked before I went to bed that it was still very cloudy. Uh, and, so that, and that's I, far I south. Saw, I saw some imagery from central Illinois, too. Wow. So that's far I mean, south, that's, right? That's that's pretty far south. I mean, I I recall some events in the in the near past where it's gotten down into Texas. So it can get really, really far south. I've, I was looking at some satellite imagery. So there's something called a day-night band that looks at emitted light. Of course, northern lights 
is light being emitted by the atmosphere. So the satellite will pick it up. And mm -hmm. I could see a signal, you know, down in northern Wisconsin. It was all along the northern, I guess I'll say the southern border of Canada right. um, and the northern border of the U.S. Um, but I guess if you're looking north from there here, you're going to see it. And that's what that's what people were seeing here, I think. Yeah, I, and, and I, I just see, I saw all sorts of incredible pictures online, right? People oh, were, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's funny how beautiful the northern lights turn up on, on camera, right? Even more uh, more spectacular than they are sometimes to the naked eye. Yeah, I mean, you really need to, I think you need a long exposure. So the the ones that I saw that, that were most interesting were people would say, like, this is a five-minute exposure. <laughs> right, Right. Does this storm continue or, or does this heightened activity continue? Will we be able to see the northern lights uh, in places we don't normally see the northern lights for much longer? Well, I mean, you're kind of fighting against the increasing daylight, plus you as you get farther north in Canada. Mm -hmm. um, so pretty soon it'll be too light to be seeing northern lights at the farthest north parts of Canada. But, you know, you have these periodic pulses of energy that's going to, that are going to be coming toward the Earth. I, I wouldn't be surprised to keep seeing it for weeks or months because we are in this period of enhanced solar activity. You know, the Northern Lights, the light show is a great part of it. Does it do any other, does it, does it have any other side effects as well? Does it, does it still interfere with communications and stuff and so on? I mean, this, this might go back a while, but uh, does yeah, this I, kind of increased solar activity have any other impact? Well, that's kind of getting out of my knowledge base, but I, right. I have, I've, I've also heard that, that it will interfere because it's, it's um, manipulating the, the ionosphere and the ionosphere, of course, is what radio waves are bouncing off, which is why, you know, when I was growing up, I could hear AM radio stations from thousands of miles away. So I think that kind of thing is interrupted. Right. And, and, and this will then, so, so interesting enough, so if you didn't, if you missed them last night, uh, because you slept through them or in, <laughs> it was too cloudy, you, could, you might get a chance to see them again, even if you're in a place where you don't normally get to see the Aurora Borealis. Right, because this was about the, I think this is maybe the third time in the last couple months that we've seen them all the way down south. I mean, we're at 43 north, so that's pretty far south. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm hopeful. I've seen them before once. That was a long time ago, but I like seeing them. It's interesting, but I also like to sleep. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Well, you'll be able to see them. I'm sure you'll be able to see them again. They're not, uh, I would have, we flew into them once. I was on an election tour and we flew into them in the Yukon. That was pretty Pretty unbelievable. Yeah, 43 North. What's 43 North? Corsica is 43 North. Uh, uh, Croatia is 43 North. So yeah, it's pretty far. You're pretty far south there. Um, yeah. When we come back, and, to, yeah, go ahead. And the, and the nice thing about being a meteorologist, of course, mm -hmm. I, I have, I'm Facebook friends with a lot of people who work shifts for the National Weather Service. So they right. were all outside in the middle of the night saying, oh, I'm great. I'm glad I'm working a midnight shift tonight. Look at the northern lights. Yeah, good night, good night to be on the overnights, which is not yeah, always really. the case. <laughs> Scott Lindstrom is with us this half hour. He's a scientist and trainer uh, with the Space Science and Engineering Center at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Uh, he slept through it like, like I did. I mean, it was cloudy in Victoria. So I didn't get a chance to, but uh, you could see the northern lights from from Madison last night. In fact, cameras on top of the uh, the building where Scott is captured them last night. It was quite the scene. I was watching them earlier. Uh, Scott, this is part of a, a like a, a longer solar cycle where it's we're seeing this increased activity over a period of time. I, I, where where are we in that? I mean, you, there's a there's a sunspot cycle. I don't really keep track of where we are in that cycle, um, but I think we're coming out of a minimum. Um, going in toward, I mean, I guess in nine years we'll be <laughs> in a maximum, yeah. something like that. So, I mean, if you presume, I guess maybe you can correlate how often you have 
big events like this with the with the sunspot cycle. I don't know if that's actually true, right? Um, but it would make sense to me because they. I always hear this: the sunspots is part of the solar cycle, right? And um, so maybe this is. I mean, but, but part of the thing is you have to have the right alignment. So I mean, if you think of energy being emitted by the sun, um, it's going out in all directions, and to intersect the Earth. That takes a very, I mean, you you have a very small fraction of the that entire sphere where that energy has to intersect the orbit of the Earth. Right. Um. So so it's it's a special set of circumstances that happens that allows us to be viewed so far to the south. Yeah. What did, what was I reading? That was the third severe geomagnetic storm since the current eleven year solar cycle began in 2019, and they expect it to uh, the cycle to peak in 2024. So we're getting okay. So we've lot got of- lots. We've got a couple. Well, 2024 is what next year. I do, I lose yeah. track of that all the time. Um, but yeah. So we in the next, you know, 12 months. I hopefully I'll have another chance to sleep through one. Yeah, we know well, next time they'll have to stay up. That's the uh, that's that's the other thing. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Tell me about. But you said you're able to spot light on your satellite maps. Like you can actually pinpoint where there are light light is emitting even at, at lat. So you could see where the northern lights were last night. That's correct. So there's a polar orbiting satellite. Well, there are three polar orbiting satellites with something called the day night band. So there's a satellite called Sumi NPP, and also NOAA 20 and NOAA 21. NOAA 21 just launched. Oh, really? Uh, but it's it's giving great data. So you have this very very sensitive uh, imager there that can detect light being emitted at night. So you can see city lights, you can see lightning, anything that emits light from the Earth. You can see light reflect if there's enough moonlight. Um, so yes, last night you could see where the northern lights were because they're emitting light. Wow. So there's a nice curtain of light across the southern border of Canada and northern border of. U.S. The, you know, the challenge is you don't get, it's not like a geostationary satellite, which is always looking at the same point. It's circling the pole, so you don't have a lot of views over the U.S.-Canadian border. But there were three last night, and you could definitely see that the northern lights were pretty far south. Yeah, it's it's remarkable how much technology has improved in your world, isn't it? I mean, you, 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 I mean, I'm thinking of the James Webb Telescope, which is a completely different kettle of fish. But still, it's amazing how much more accurate and more, more how much more data you get these days. Oh yeah, and that's the the uh, factoid I like to give. I mean, when I started in meteorology, which was really quite a long time ago, it was very unusual to get a good two day forecast, and now no one blinks if you get a good seven day forecast. So the change in technology and computer power has really driven a great revolution in how well you can forecast things in the, at, at, for weather. Um, and then these observations are for the solar component as well are helping people anticipate this kind of aurora activity. Yeah, because because it seemed to me that 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 was not that it, maybe I just haven't been paying enough attention, but it seemed to me that that was the idea that you could that you could announce go outside. You might yeah. see them tonight was was kind of new to me. Yeah, I don't really, I mean, I think I've heard this, that kind of thing within the last, I don't know, five years. Sure. Um, and that kind of correlates when the GOES-R satellite system was launched. Mm-hmm. And it has instruments on it that detect solar activity. So better observations give you better predictions. Well, Scott, if, 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 you, if you don't see the next one, if you sleep through the next Madison, Wisconsin <laughs> ones, you know you're always welcome to come visit uh, visit us just here over on the other side of the border. And, uh, you know, Yukon, northern BC, they all have great northern lights as well. 
I am scheduled to fly to Alaska in September for work. So I'm hoping I'm hopeful that something there you will happen go. Close it up. Close yeah. it up. <laughs> Scott, thank you so much. You're welcome. We're going to dip far down into the U.S. now, a place called Marietta, Oklahoma. I don't think they got the northern lights there last night. It's just sitting north of Texas. And my next guest, Tonya, uh, Tanya Spanglo, Social media is a strange phenomenon, isn't it, at times? Um, She had surgery a while back and was told that she needed to consume a certain amount of water each day. The problem is she doesn't enjoy drinking just plain water. It's it's not interesting. Or, Or she doesn't like the taste, but she had to do it anyway. She also had to give up drinking her favorite thing, which was Coke. She couldn't drink that anymore. So it was plain water or do something to make it better, right? or make it different at least. So she started experimenting with the diff- these different kinds of flavors, things like that I'd never heard of, things like mermaid, which I gather is sort of pina colada-esque, pineapple and coconut, unicorn, which I think is blue and tastes like cotton candy. I mean, these are all artificial sweet, artificially sweetened and so on. Um, so she took to social media to start sharing these recipes and created something called Water Talk, where she mixes up a new batch of this flavored water each day. And it is incredibly popular. Here, have a listen. I got you with the water recipes, baby. Jolly Rancher Cotton Candy today. We're switching it up. First ice. I want a good ice for you. Fill her up. A small water today, and then I'm going to pour it in this 30-ounce Stanley so you can see what it looks like in here because, y'all, this is a pretty one. Let's go to the water bar. Where's she at? Right there, cotton candy. We're going to do three pumps of the cotton candy. Just so you know, cotton candy by itself, absolutely amazing. With a pink or blue starburst, even more amazing. Here's the star of the show right here, that Jolly Rancher green apple, y'all. Let's get our straw. (laughs) And everyone is like that. And and the moment of of truth is when she gets that straw. Because then she takes a sip of it, and then you know whether it was any good or not. So she has a caddy, like this caddy of zero calorie powdered flavor packets, strawberry, pineapple, blue raspberry, other things um, with zero calorie syrups, all kinds of stuff from pistachio latte to raspberry and peach and you name it. And then she sort of goes through all of them. It's an interesting thing. It's an interesting thing. I'm not a big fan of sort of sweet water, that taste. Not a huge fan of it, whether it be Gatorade or Kool-Aid. I mean, I liked Kool-Aid when I was a kid. Who doesn't? Um, but not, but she makes it very compelling. And 800,000 people agree more even because that's how many followers she has on TikTok who watch these videos. People stop her in the street to thank her. It's not without its controversy, by the way. Nutritionists, have quite, of course, point out that water goals are, don't really have a proven benefit. Um there's really no consensus about how much H2O you should be consuming daily. And there are still concerns about the impacts of artificial sweeteners. Again, jury's out on that too. But, you know, there's, there's as always, when you're sort of talking about weight loss and nutrition online, there's going to be those who want to point out that, uh, that, that there are issues with what, you're, what it is that you're espousing here. But she doesn't take any notice of that. You know, she's got her habits and she's being told that it's all okay. And uh, her legions of fans say, listen, she's helped us kick energy drink and soft drink habits because of her enthusiasm and the way she mixes these drinks. And Tanya Spanglo uh, joins us now from Marietta, Oklahoma. Tanya, thank you for your time tonight. Absolutely. Tell me about, I mean, this, this, like so many things uh, on social media, this started, this was a personal journey for you, right? I mean, it started with a need to find, um, it was basically started because you needed to find a way to drink more water. 
That's right. It started because I have a water goal every day I need to meet and plain water is just not my thing. So <laughs> um, I just started mixing and matching flavors and man, it has taken off. It is crazy. It's wild. <laughs> it has taken off. It's just so well, like regular water, even from a young age, no way, right? You just don't like, doesn't matter if it was fizzy or so no, I mean, I, can, I mean, I drink plain water still now. Like I yeah. drink, I drink plain water now. I drink water, just regular plain water. <laughs> um, but to meet that water goal, to meet that 64 ounces a day, I was really struggling. And so that really hindered my weight loss because mm -hmm. after weight loss surgery, you need to meet a protein goal, your water right. goal, your vitamins daily, body movement daily. So that's one of the requirements and I just couldn't do it. And so I just wasn't losing as much weight as I could have been doing. And I just started flavoring my water and it, it helped me. So I've met my water goal every day since. <laughs> How long has that been? Oh man, it's been, um, I've been doing it over, over a year and a half, like wow. almost two years. Mm -hmm. So what did you decide to sort of start sharing that on, on social media? Well, I was sharing my weight loss journey already, and I had just a small following of pretty much weight loss people. We were all doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, other people who had had weight loss surgery, other people who were on a weight loss journey or just a journey to self-love and just self-worth and just we bounce ideas off each other's for recipes and things. And so I just was already putting the skinny syrups in my coffee. And so I would make your coffee. I would make right. protein coffee. Right. So I put them protein coffee. That's a huge thing. So those went viral on TikTok as well. And one day I was just at TJ Maxx and I saw some fruity flavors and I thought, well, I know those are not for coffee, but I have no idea what I could use those for, but I bought them. And it was mermaid and unicorn. <laughs> mermaid and unicorn. Drink. I don't even know what and that would those taste first like. Two I, bought. I brought yeah. them home and I put them in my water and I thought, yes, this is it. Like this is, this is the ticket. I shared them. They instantly went viral. Skinny Mixes contacted me like three days later and were like, girl, what have you done? Like, you have, yeah. we have blown up. Like, this is insane. You know, people didn't even know really who Skinny Mixes were. Like, um, they were just, a, they're just a small company. They've been around for like 14 years. But, you know, you could see them in TJ Maxx, Ross. Now they are all over the world. They cannot, wow. I mean, it's in, it is insane. Their website has just boomed. It's crazy. So I just shared them and I started sharing a water, maybe like a water a week. Mm -hmm. Every time I shared a water, it went viral every time. And so Remarkable. I was just like, all right, this is it. What, <laughs> so what? I, I, mean, that, I turned that into a water of the day. So now, <laughs> now you do a water of the day. Now you do each day. Of people. Tony, what do you think? What do you think? I mean, what do you think attracts people to it? I mean, I didn't realize there were so many people out there that needed inspiration about their water. And yet here you are. No, it's crazy. I think it's because it's just something new. You mm -hmm. know, something new takes off something. You know, you hear pina colada water or you hear cotton candy water. I've got bubblegum water, mermaid water. It's all the little trendy names as well. And so it's really taken off. <clears throat> and it's not just with women. I've got, I've got so many men that have followed me and they're like, Hey, I'm a man, but I'm loving those waters. So it's everybody. It's everywhere. <laughs> they love their mermaid water and their unicorn water. And so probably not actually telling as many people as the women, but, but yeah, I've got a lot of men making these waters also in all ages from young to old. They're making these waters. So the, um, I, I do, do you, do you, because I, I think I was reading back to, to your story as well, that for a long time, I mean, like so many people, you drank, you drank lots of cola or diet cola or whatever. And if, this has been this has been better for you, you think? This has been a change. I myself was addicted to Coca-Cola, mm -hmm. um, but I was over 420 pounds at one time. Oh, wow. And I could drink, you know, 
five or six Cokes a day. And so after weight loss surgery, carbonation is not something you're supposed to have. Mm -hmm. Every once in a while, I'll treat myself with a Coke Zero. So this really, if I even if I even crave a Coke or a Coke Zero, I'll just make a water. And so I have so many people in my comments every day, Every even this morning. I've had probably 50 people already this morning comment how this has kicked their soda addiction. Like they have, they have taken over. One lady was addicted to Pepsi for like 32 years. She says oh, she's wow. been addicted to Pepsi. She hasn't had a Pepsi in like 15 days since she's been making the waters. So, so many people are replacing their soda addiction. And then I had a lady this morning say that she has stopped drinking monsters, the energy drinks. Right. She's kicked the monster addiction for the waters. So it's an amazing thing. Right. So you understand where the, where those addictions come from, right? Because you, you understand how it works. I understand because I was addicted myself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How, how do you come up with it? I mean, one a day is a lot of, one a day is tough. Yeah, that's a I know lot so of... far I'm up to, so I have so far 105 water recipes on TikTok <laughs> as of today. I can't, I've counted them as <laughs> of today. I have 105 water combos. So it's pretty amazing. It is. And I get the recipe. Like, that's how my brain works. My mom's mm -hmm. had me in the kitchen since I was two. Mm -hmm. And so we would come up with recipes. And even though we would see something, we would always make it our own. And so even my husband, he was like, I don't know how you do that. Like, I don't know how your brain just comes up with recipes. And I just, I've been doing it since I was two. So I, I love doing it. Yeah. And, and, and also, I mean, of course, part of it is, is, is you, as you well know, right? Your enthusiasm for it. Uh, a lot of people could make those videos and no one would watch them. You know that, right? I do. I think there there's a big group of people out there that are for me, and there's a big group that is not for me. Yeah, tell me about <laughs> so, the for not. Where did that come from? I, I mean, lots yeah. of people that are like, "How are you this excited about a water? Come on, you just won an Academy Award." This morning, I woke up and I had a comment that said, "You get the Academy Award today because there's no way that water's that good." <laughs> and I just said, "Try it, baby. It is. <laughs> you give it a try. It is." Yeah, I mean, I guess there's been some, there's been some backlash too from sort of nutritionists and so on. I mean, around kind of sweeteners and all that stuff. What do you say to them? Mm, I just say that for me, it's my weight loss journey. It's my um, TikTok page. I share what I want. Everything yeah. I share is approved by my dietitian and my nutritionist. Mm -hmm. And so they approve these waters. They actually recommend these waters to everyone who goes to the place where I had my weight loss surgery. Right. They recommend these. If they're having trouble meeting their water goal, they're like, hey, go follow Tanya on TikTok because she makes those waters and they're amazing. So my dietitian, my nutritionists approve these waters. They would rather me drink these and meet my water goal as opposed to not meeting my water goal. Right. And so for me, it's approved by them. And so that's good enough for me. It doesn't bother me when anybody on the internet says, because for me, you know, don't drink it. I'm sharing something that I drink. And if you don't want to make it, well, then don't make it. My feelings aren't hurt. <laughs> yeah, I guess I mean, that's the beauty. I mean, it, it, ultimately, this isn't just something, this isn't a product that you are selling. This is something that you're no, doing. And there's a big difference. I'm not selling anything. I'm just out here. I'm sharing what I, I share what I eat. Every day I share what I eat. I share what I drink. And this goes right along with that. So it's nothing new that I've like taken on. It's something I'm already doing. Um, and that's also the beauty of social media is when you're a genuine content creator and you're pretty much you're not taking on new things you're not trying to sell people you're not doing ads you're just sharing your life um and so you got to be ready for the criticism and the compliments you got to be ready for both you got to have some thick skin out there you do, <laughs> and, you I do. do. I, and it was unexpected i mean and, and in this case it's kind of it's always unexpected right one one day as you mentioned you sort of have a few followers the next thing you know you have like eight hundred thousand followers that's yeah, a lot of people insane. that's a it's lot crazy. of people that is a lot of people. It is. It is. <laughs> it's a it lot is. Of people. From all over the world. You I mean, I imagine from, from, 
Yeah, yeah, that's a, and that's pressure too. It must have must have filtered in. No, no pun intended. It must have filtered into your into your regular life too. Like, I mean, you're not just on TikTok. People will recognize you. At, at you know, if you if you go further on from Marietta, people are going to recognize you outside of your hometown now and say, "I know you." My husband can't stand it. <laughs> My husband is like, yeah. I'm never going anywhere else with you ever. Every time we go out to eat, somebody comes up. Every time we go to Walmart, somebody comes up. But I love it. I love it because they usually come up like one lady at Walmart just last week. She come up in the parking lot and she said, I have lost 32 pounds and I've only been following you for two months and I've lost 32 pounds because of you. And I always tell them the same thing. It's not because of me. It's because of you. I give you the ideas, but you have to implement them to your life. And if you are amazing and if you're not, that's fine too. But yeah, my husband, he was like, no, I'm not leaving this house with you again. I'm, <laughs> I'm so sick of you. <laughs> Is that a good or bad thing? I don't know. Yeah. We went on vacation. We went on vacation and we stepped foot in. We we drove an hour and a half away from the house and we stepped foot in the hotel and a woman met me in the lobby and she was like, I saw you outside and I followed you in here, but I'm not a stalker. And my husband walked up and was like, what is going on right now? Oh, uh, so the, is that, I guess, the, I guess that's a, there could be a, that there's an upside and a downside to everything. Right? Yeah. For one minute, for one second, you're thinking, is this good or bad? But it it always turns out good. Like I said, I love it. I love to meet people that follow me and I love to hear the stories. I love to hear how they say, you know, I've lost so much weight because of you. And I always, it's not because of me, you know, we're all influenced by somebody on the internet. And if I can help somebody out, I'm going to, I love it. What do you do now? What, are you going to carry on? Because at some point you, you sort of, you'll have, um, I guess, I guess your weight loss journey will be, will be forever, right? I mean, you sort of always, so you're going to carry this on for a while? Yeah, it's a lifestyle for me. It's not a diet. It's not it's something that I'm just doing for like a year. It's not something I'm doing until I reach a certain weight. Like this is my lifestyle that I've adapted to. And so, yeah, I guess as long as I, as long as I get, as long as they keep loving me, I'll keep sharing. <laughs> <laughs> and I would just, and also just so people know, Marietta's what population about 2,700 or so. It's, it's a small, it's a pretty small place near the Texas border, right? Uh, a little more than that. I'm yeah. not sure what the population is, but it is it, very small. I think we have uh, two stoplights. So yeah, I yeah. think it's, it's pretty small wow so here it's, that that to me is always kind of one of the beauties of it it's about halfway between oklahoma city and dallas right is that about yes about right? mm-hmm. yes that's, that's one of the amazing things about social media there you are in your kitchen in marietta oklahoma now people all over the place have seen you right and they all know what my kitchen looks like yeah, they <laughs> yeah all know. i know what your kitchen looks uh, like <laughs> yeah as soon as i switched like i just switched my format kind of and turned around they were like what's going on like where's the little deer in the background like what where why have you switched and i'm like i'm trying to get better lighting up in here <laughs> there you go well tanya thank you so much for your time i appreciate it absolutely you have a great day